This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burns Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome back to the podcast. We're going to pick up on a discussion on uh, pulmonary artery catheters. I was looking back at previous podcasts, and, and we did some podcasts on, on pulmonary catheters about two years ago. But I want to focus on one number uh, that is looked at probably more than any other number on a PA catheter or a SWAN, and that's the wedge. And the wedge, for a lot of reasons, I think is misunderstood. It is misinterpreted. Uh, people... Um, make way too many decisions based on that one number than perhaps they should. Last week we talked about my what I called my favorite number on a PA catheter, and that's the SVO2. And to me, that's a number that has a lot of integrity. Uh, I can rely on it a lot, and it's able to predict uh, how my treatment of shock is going. And when we think about shock, one thing that I think people misunderstand often is they think shock represents a patient who has a low blood pressure. Most of what intensive care units exist for nowadays, and it doesn't really matter what kind of intensive care unit. I run a burn intensive care unit. It could be a trauma intensive care unit, a neuro intensive care unit, a cardiac surgical ICU. But most of what ICUs do is to avoid the, the, the development of and to treat shock. And shock is defined when oxygen delivery is not adequate to meet cellular demand. And that doesn't say a particular blood pressure. And shock can occur in the face of a normal blood pressure. And so we put pulmonary catheters or Swan-Gans catheters in patients for a variety of reasons, and most of which we think is to treat shock. Now, I don't want to talk here whether I think PA catheters are a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, I think in my institution, I'm probably on the very low end of people who put in a lot of PA catheters. I think the data shows that PA catheters don't really produce an improvement in outcome like we initially thought. And we've discussed that in previous podcasts, but if you're putting a PA catheter, and probably the one number that people want to know first is, what was the wedge? And I want to explain what a wedge is, how do we define it, how do we use it, and what are the problems with it. So let's go back, if we can, to maybe high school, and we're doing some biology, we're doing a physiology course, and we're talking about muscle. And the different parts of muscle we learned about were things like actin and myosin. And we learned that it's the overlay of actin and myosin that produces uh, the muscle contraction. And we have a, the, the basic unit of a muscle, something called sarcomere. And as the actin and myosin basically have a good overlay, they get a good, strong force of contraction. If that sarcomere is too short, those actin and myosin fibers start to bundle up, uh, and we get a very ineffective contracture, and therefore our, our, our strength of that twitch is not as strong. If we overstretch that sarcomere, make it too long, those actin and the myosin fibers aren't overacting at all. They're very limited in their, their overlap, and we see a decrease in the strength of our contraction. That's what we're doing at the wedge. That basic trying to find the optimal sarcomere length that we do with a skeletal muscle um, is what we're trying to do in the PA catheter. Now, when I was in college, what we did is we isolated a a frog's leg. We took the gastrocnemius muscle uh, of a frog, and we put it on a little uh, balance, and we isolated it, and we stimulated it. And when we stimulated it, we measured the amount of twitch displacement of that isolated muscle. And as we loaded uh, weight 
onto that isolated muscle, we saw that the magnitude of the twitch basically would increase. And as what we're doing is we're loading that muscle uh, and increasing the length, we're optimizing the overlay between actin and myosin. Now, all this is well explained perhaps best in Guyton's physiology textbook, and anybody who's uh, studied biology in college has seen that textbook, perhaps one of my favorite textbooks of all times. And I say that because I have a graduate degree in physiology, so it is. It, I just I love that book. But as we continue to load that muscle, what happened is we saw the magnitude of the twitch start to decrease. And the physiological explanation of that was is because as we were continued to overload that muscle with weight, we were basically over-distending that sarcomere, and we had less overlay uh, or overlap of that actin and myosin, and therefore the force of contraction began to decrease. Now, we take our patient in shock. Now, skeletal muscle, I'm well aware of, is different than cardiac muscle. But we have our patient in shock, and they may have a low blood pressure, or they may be oliguric, not making urine, uh, and we're curious what the, what's going on. And we'll put a PA catheter in, and we want to know what the wedge is. And typically, from a surgical standpoint, we want to know what a wedge is because we want to know if the patient's adequately volume-resuscitated. And if they're not adequately volume-resuscitated, we want to give them adequate volume resuscitation. And why do we do that? Well, let's go back to our basic physiological equations. That, again, this shock isn't defined so much about a blood pressure, but oxygen delivery. And what's one of the key determinants of oxygen delivery? is flow. And what is the variable that we look at when we assess flow? It's cardiac output. And cardiac output is determined really by two variables. We know that cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume. Now, for most purposes, increasing the stroke volume is considered physiologically not a good thing to do. Why would that be? Why is stroke volume not a particularly good thing to do? Well, if I, my stroke volume is the same and I increase heart rate, will that improve my cardiac output? The answer is yes. But at what cost? Because as we increase cardiac output, or excuse me, as we increase the heart rate, we're actually decreasing the perfusion time of the heart. Because remember that the heart doesn't perfuse during systole. The heart is a muscle. And so when it's squeezing blood out of it, uh, the pressure inside that muscle is high and it prevents blood from flowing through the muscle. It's only when the heart relaxes the blood can flow through the heart muscle and deliver the vital oxygen that it needs. And as we increase the heart rate, what happens is the amount of time in any given one minute period of time decreases because we're decreasing the diastolic time uh, of the cycle, and therefore increasing heart rate is potentially problematic. And we see this in a, a variety of intensive care settings. Somebody who's a high-risk cardiovascular patient, we want to control their heart rate. And somebody who is having an acute myocardial infarction, uh, we want to control the heart rate because that basically will improve oxygen delivery and decrease oxygen consumption. So we're going to focus really on stroke volume. Well, how can I maximize stroke volume? Well, I want to pour more blood back in that stroke volume. The heart can't pump, but the heart doesn't see. So the idea is that by putting a catheter in and ensuring that I've got adequate preload, that I'm getting um, more blood back to the heart, so the heart can pump more blood. As I get more heart, excuse me, as I get more blood back to the heart, I'm filling up that ventricle, and hopefully I'm getting the optimal sarcomere length, the optimal uh, overlay of actin and myosin to get the appropriate level of contraction. So that's what I would like to do. 
well, how can I measure that? What, what, is, what is the optimal thing that I'm looking for? Well, when you start reading your physiology textbooks, you'll find that the best determinant of preload in trying to maximize cardiac output is something called left ventricular end diastolic volume. Left ventricular end diastolic volume. And sometimes in the books you'll see this abbreviated LVEDV. Left ventricular end diastolic volume. Um, that is the volume that's in the left ventricle at the end of diastole, the period right before the heart contracts. And that is the determinant of preload. Well, how do we measure left ventricular end diastolic volume? Well, perhaps the best way to do that is with an echocardiogram, whether it's a surface echo or a TEE. But how do we do that with a PA catheter? The answer is we don't. We don't get a direct measurement of left ventricular end diastolic volume. So we put the catheter in and we do what's called the wedge. Well, when we put that catheter in, it goes in through the subclavian, or the, uh, hopefully not, but in rare circumstances we bring it from the groin, or um, perhaps it's coming from the, the IJ as well. And it goes through the right atrium into the right ventricle, and it sits in the pulmonary artery, and it goes out into the pulmonary outflow tract. And you put a balloon up. And when you put the balloon up, you're decreasing forward flow of blood down the pulmonary artery. Because you're sitting in the pulmonary, the blood goes from the pulmonary artery down to the pulmonary capillaries, down around the alveolus to the pulmonary vein. Then it goes back to the left atrium through the mitral valve into the left ventricle. That's where we want. That's where the action is in the left ventricle. We want to measure what the volume is in the left ventricle. Here we are, way proximal in the pulmonary artery. And so we occlude the forward flow. And so when we occlude the forward flow, we basically have this column of water or blood. And that column of blood pressure, since I don't have any forward flow, the pressure is supposed to stabilize. And as the pressure stabilizes, because there's no forward flow, and I get it at the right cycle in the, in the respirations, the pressure in the left ventricle uh, basically will approximate that of the left atrium, and that'll go to the pulmonary vein around the alveolus of the pulmonary artery. So I've got this measurement that's very um, uh, extrapolated. I'm assuming that the pressure that I measure in the pulmonary artery is equivalent to what I'm seeing in the pulmonary vein, which is equivalent to see what I'm seeing in the left atrium, and which is equivalent to what I'm seeing in the left ventricle and in diastole. And that is my surrogate for measuring the left ventricular and diastolic volume a indirect measurement of the left ventricular end diastolic pressure. Okay. So I think I've got this idea of left ventricular end diastolic pressure. And with that best guess of left ventricular end diastolic pressure, I can extrapolate what the left ventricular end diastolic volume is. Well, let's think for a second. What is the relationship between changes of pressure and changes in volume. If I change my, if I change my volume of, of, of something and there's a change of pressure, what's that relationship typically related to? Well, basically, that's what compliance is. Is that if I take a, a balloon and I start to blow it up, as I decrease the compliance of that, the relationship is not linear. The relationship is exponential. So what does that mean? Well, that means that if I have, if I take somebody's wedge from 10 to 15, is that going to 
and uh, if I see that increase in the left ventricular end diastolic pressure, is that going to result in an increase in the left ventricular end diastolic volume? Well, we hope so. It should. Now, if I take somebody's wedge or left ventricular end diastolic pressure and I increase it from 15 to 20, another increase in 5, is that going to produce the same increase in the left ventricular end diastolic volume that I saw from taking the pressure from 10 to 15? And the answer is no. And the answer is no because that relationship is not linear. That relationship is exponential. We're talking about compliance of the ventricle now. Well, that's interesting. So a change of 5 of my wedge from 10 to 15 is not going to produce the same volume change of the ventricle from 15 to 10. Well, that's interesting. Now, I've got two patients in the intensive care unit. One is a young, healthy guy. The other is a, a guy who's not so healthy. Well, they're both in the intensive care unit. I guess they're not, either one of them are healthy. But one, the first guy is previously healthy. Perhaps he exercised frequently, didn't have any pre-existing heart disease, didn't have any hypertension, no cardiomyopathies, no left ventricular hypertrophy. Patient two wasn't so healthy. And he had uh, hypertension, a concentric left ventricular hypertrophy, and has had a previous myocardial infarction. The question then is, what is the compliances of these two patients? Do they have equivalent compliance? Previously young, healthy guy, previously not healthy guy with previous cardiac disease. The answer is they don't have equivalent compliance. That would seem rather self-evident to you and to me. Well, if which one doesn't have a compliant ventricle? Well, it's the old guy. The old guy who's got left ventricular hypertrophy, hypertension, and a previous myocardial infarction, whereas normal myocardium, either maybe he's got a transmural MI, has been replaced with SCAR. So what does that mean if he's got a non-compliant ventricle? Well, that means that compliance curve shifts. So that taking, let's go from our, our previously healthy patient, taking a wedge from 15 to, say, 20 in a more compliant ventricle means I'm going to get an increase, a, a larger increase in my left ventricular end diastolic volume than I would in my non-compliant ventricle. So a change from 15 to 20 is going to mean different than it's in the first fellow than in the second fellow because of the non-compliant ventricle. So because of differences in ventricular compliances, we see variability between patients of what a change in a wedge would mean. Interpatient variability. The reason why I bring this up, because I've seen, um, for instance, if we take the diagnosis of what we call ARDS, ARDS says that we have um, a PF ratio of less than 200, we've got um, five lobar or four quadrant infiltrates on a chest x-ray, and a pulmonary artery occlusive pressure less than 18. When you're making broad diagnosis, you need to have some sort of, some sort of line in the sand. But does a wedge of 18 mean the same thing in all patients? And the answer is no, it doesn't. I've seen uh, various protocols in intensive care units that says do this until wedge gets to 18. And I question some of the wisdom of those because a wedge of 18 means something different in every patient. And because of this interpatient variability. Now, there are things that will create 
intra-patient variability, meaning that, that those dynamics of the wedge are going to change within that, a particular patient over time because a, a given patient may have changes in their compliance over the course of a day. And what will change their ventricular compliance? Well, things like tachycardia, things like inotropic uh, agents such as dobutamine, sepsis, uh, um, the patient's particular volume status. Um, those will all change the compliance within a given patient over a period of day. So we have interpatient variability in cardiac compliance, and we have intrapatient variability in cardiac compliance. Why do I bring all this up? I bring all this up so I want you to be somewhat skeptical of what this number means. I don't want you to look at a wedge and go to a particular flow diagram and say, okay, this says that, then I do this. One of the things that I really strive with our surgical residents is I want them to be somewhat cynical. I want them to develop uh, clinical uh, clinical assessment skills, and I want them to develop judgment. These things are all very hard to do. And explaining why these numbers are good, what makes these numbers problematic, um, will hopefully make one make better judgments. If you take garbage numbers, you're going to make garbage decisions. Now, the other thing that with a, a wedge is it is a sum of forces. It is a vector. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's take our patient. Let's take all these issues of compliance and put them aside now. And let's take what does this number mean when I've got a balloon in somebody's pulmonary artery. It's up and it decreases forward flow. Are there things that can make that number falsely elevated? Well, yes. One of those is, for instance, PEEP positive end expiratory pressure because what peeps going to do or high airway pressures are going to do is it's going to push on that water column and it's going to make that that um, PAOP that, that wedge pressure pulmonary occlusive pressure falsely elevated and so you need to be thinking about that as what is the element of my airway pressures in regards to my pulmonary occlusive pressure now to get around this uh, effect of um, wedge being a sum of forces and the impact of high airway pressures and PEEP, the left ventricular end diastolic volume index was developed. And the left ventricular end diastolic volume index was designed hopefully to be a surrogate of preload and hopefully it isn't as sensitive to increase airway pressures. Now, the LV EDVI was developed at a time where PEEP was used indiscriminately. The, uh, LV, the EDVI catheters, what we used to call REF catheters, came out in the mid to late 90s. And at that point in time, it was not uncommon to see people on 20, 25s of PEEP. We made no uh, concern about people having peak inspiratory pressures above 50 or 60. And it was not uncommon to see people with uh, ARDS have multiple chest tubes and both hemithoraces. And that was one of the things that made um, the uh, left ventricular end diastolic volume index uh, hopefully a, a good assessment in determining what is the patient's preload. So where does this number EDVI come from? Well, again, let's go back to our basic equation that cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume. We told you that the magic number in determining preload is the stroke volume. That's what determines preload, is the stroke volume. And we don't have a good continuous measurement of stroke volume in the absence of echocardiography. And so what you do is if you took the cardiac output, if you solve for stroke volume, you'd basically take cardiac output over heart rate, and that would give you stroke volume. Well, what we want to know in preload, we said, is what? The left ventricular end diastolic pressure, uh, the left ventricular end diastolic volume. 
So if I took the cardiac output over the heart rate, and I also basically divided that whole thing by the ejection fraction, that would give me, if I knew that 45% of um, uh, the, the uh, stroke volume uh, was remaining in diastole, that would give me what's called the end diastolic volume. So end diastolic volume is equal to cardiac output over the product heart rate times end diastolic, or heart rate times ejection fraction. That is end diastolic volume. Now it is a calculated number. Uh, if I if I want to have the EDVI, the equation then turns into cardiac index over or cardiac index divided by the product of heart rate times ejection fraction, and that gives you your EDVI variable. Uh, and that's where the number is derived from. It's a calculated number. There's some issues with what they call mathematical coupling, so that as the ejection fraction or as the cardiac output will go up, the EDVI will go up, uh, and there's uh, several papers that are written about that. All these are surrogates, uh, and none of them are foolproof. Now, one of the key things in this is that you're looking at the ejection fraction. And it used to be when these catheters first came out that they sense the QRS complex uh, and it would basically take a, uh, that sensing to the QRS complex is used and help determining the ejection fraction. So these catheters even to this day have some Achilles heels. For instance a patient who is overly tachycardic. The ejection fraction measurement of this becomes unreliable. A patient who has a low cardiac index. This becomes unreliable. A patient who has an irregular heart rate. This becomes unreliable. Uh, so you need to kind of, uh, patients who are febrile, this becomes unreliable. So you think, well, it sounds like the patients are actually putting these PA catheters in. Uh, so you need to kind of be aware of, of what these weaknesses of these catheters are because you're going to put it in. And if somebody's got an ejection fraction of, say, you know, 20%, um, I would not put in a, uh, a lot of credibility in what my EDVI catheter would be. And then I would be much more, uh, have a much lower threshold in getting an echocardiogram because I think that's really kind of the gold standard in 2010 to know what's going on at the bedside regarding cardiovascular performance. The problem is, is that it's difficult to get that on a, a frequent basis and certainly it's not available on a continuous basis. So why are we doing all these assessments to preload? That's where it really comes down to. It's because if I determine that my preload is low, I want to perhaps optimize my preload to improve the cardiac output. This is basically recruitable cardiac output. Because if, I've, if we go back to our wedge number, if we say that our wedge is low, then my, you know, if I have a wedge of, say, 12, and my cardiac output is low, uh, or index is low, and I want to improve it, one of the things that I would do before perhaps hitting them with an iodotropic agent or a vasopressor would perhaps see, give them more preload. Take, say, the wedge from, say, 12 to 16 or 18. And if once I do that, hopefully I've gone, I've optimized the interaction between my actin and myosin and my sarcomere. I have improved my contractility of the heart, and therefore, by optimizing that stroke volume, I'm going to have an improved cardiac output. That doesn't always happen. You may take your wedge from, say, 12 to 16 or 17 or 18 and not see an improvement in your cardiac output. My experience has been that I don't see residents often look at the interaction between my changes in my pulmonary occlusive pressure and what's the impact of that on my cardiac output. You'll say, well, they had a low, they had a low um, wedge. I took their wedge from 12 to 18. And the next question would be, why did you do that? Because it was low. So why did you take it up? Because it was low. 
And what were you trying to achieve? To get it high. No. You try, you're trying, what you're trying to achieve is to improve the cardiac output. Because I, by improving the cardiac output, I am improving oxygen delivery. So the question that needs to be asked is, I took my wedge from 12 to 18, and it produced an improvement in my cardiac output. If it's not improving my cardiac output, I need to reinvestigate another way of improving oxygen delivery. This is basic background on pulmonary artery occlusive pressures. I get a lot of requests for these kind of things. It's a little bit difficult to do in the form of a podcast because these things uh, would be do better with a lot of diagrams and uh, a lot of formulas. I want to stay away from the video podcasting uh, because, one, you don't really want to look at my ugly mug, but, two, the way and I sample this kind of material and, and what I know the listeners, people are doing these on trains and on exercising and driving, and so I don't want to be saying, oh, look at this particular boring diagram. What's happening on the other podcasts? We run other podcasts as well, again, free and available on iTunes. On the Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional uh, podcast, doing a uh, discussion, uh, a couple series podcasts on rapid sequence intubation, and on the PHTLS podcast, uh, doing a discussion on pediatric trauma. This particular week is on the discussion of the three things that kill children quickly. Thanks for listening. This is IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. Have a great day.